The Hurling Pod on OTB Sports. I look at the way Pekin celebrate. I look at the way Limerick celebrates a monster, right? To, to go, we actually want to win the Leinster. You know, or the treatment is just another game, another step forward. That's, that's the question I have. Subscribe to the GA podcast feed on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. It's half past seven. You're welcome along to Tuesday's OTB AM. We're going to be with you between now and 10 o'clock this morning. And coming up, we're going to be chatting to Nicola Talent of the Sunday World to chat about Tyson Fury and uh, the refusal to let him to the, into the United States last week. We're also going to be joined by Andy Mitten to talk about Manchester United and a fairly wild few days at the club over the weekend. Uh, and we will have Simon Cox of Republic of Ireland fame with us a little bit later on to bask in the warm glow of the tournament that is Euro 2012, 10 years this week since that famous slash infamous Italy game. Spain game. Spain game is 10 years ago this week, isn't it? That's what that's, that's that's the anniversary. It all blends into one. Dan MacDonald of the Irish Independent is with us in studio. Dan, how excited are you to get uh, the opportunity to reflect on Euro 2012? It's the, it's the Italy game. It is the Italy game. It's it the Italy game, okay. It is... Um, it's funny how it's all a blur to a lot of people. I mean, that might, might even What's be the, the case for people who are there. Because, because the Spain game, because uh, Ireland were in Poland last week in, in Woods, and the day of the one-all draw with Ukraine was the anniversary of the Spain match. So that would have been something that would have been sort of covered around that game. So, uh, yeah, James McLean was the only player who was present in both squads Keith Andrews was obviously a squad member in 2012 and is there as an assistant manager now but yeah that was uh, back in Poland it did sort of I mean I'm sure there's people sort of listening or watching who were there because a lot of people were there a lot of Irish (laughs) people were there because that was like a generational event for a lot of people who probably you know, might have been their first time to go to a major tournament as an adult in a lot of cases um, if they couldn't have met 2002 so you were talking like this 18 year gap um, and uh, yeah like being in Poland last week it did sort of bring it back the sort of there was a tram to the stadium you know sort of a shopping complex nearby the stadium you're walking through uh, and just that feeling of I don't know that sort of deadened feeling that seemed to exist for a large part of that tournament it was something that brought back I mean I do like Poland but I sort of I've been there quite a lot if you cover football the Irish football team you will go to Poland a lot this is something that you need to you come to terms with the realisation <laughs> that you will um, That's. Uh, like I, I think I'm definitely I'm you say that to, as if it's the country's fault rather than Republic <laughs> yeah. of Ireland football's it's team rubber, fault it's, it's, it's the, the FBI's like permanent love affair with Poland um, <laughs> like I genuinely I, I think I might have been there 12 or 13 times at this stage through, right. very, through various reasons uh, and I just wonder if 2012 has, has turned me off because like it's a beautiful country you know great place and stuff but it's sort of just brings flashbacks you know brings flash, flashbacks to that to that point in time Um yeah, which which leaves mixed memories, but I I suppose a lot of people that were there, um, everyone will have their own stories. It's like mm-hmm. I, I I've I, I think Colin put through a clip, you know, of Keith Andrews talking about it there at one stage, and he described it as um, from the players' point of view of like walking out into a stag do every day, and that's a line I actually use all the time about that tournament. It was like this big sort of whatever Irish wise, maybe ten day to two week long stag party. So like any stag party, everyone has their own story. Yeah. Now, people have a shared experience, but 
people will have their own memories some good some bad many forgotten I'd say Is that just part of your frustration that there was a massive stag going on and you just weren't invited you had to be uh, a consummate professional Well I mean I'd like to say I was a consummate professional I mean generally was but it's, it's more so like arriving at a stag party late when you've been working that day so you sort of like you, you, you arrive to the stag late you might be introduced to people you don't remember their names and you know you like you sort of you have a couple because we actually got out to the press would have would have been quite a long trip and um, because prior to that there had been a training camp in Montecatini in Italy which mm. was um, back to like sort of trapped spiritual home basically and that was a week or so and then on to Hungary and then arrived to Sopot quite early um, and actually the couple of days building up to the tournament it was quite a good vibe because you have that sort of giddy enthusiasm and, and maybe that whole delusion maybe of thinking, oh, maybe this could go quite well. You know, Ireland's in a major tournament. This could be a great experience to cover this and yeah. these big games coming up. And then um, and then naturally, like more and more people started to arrive. So suddenly became a little bit more full around the place. And, and then the first game happened and it was like the crash, you know. I think that's a perfect teaser of a note to leave it on uh, yeah. and then the crash uh, we will be coming back to this a little bit later on in the show if you were at the stag party in 2012 we'd love to hear from you you can tweet us at off the ball you can comment on our YouTube stream as well if that's where you're watching us this morning just to tell you what's coming up Nicola Talent is going to be on the line with us in about 15 minutes time to chat through the latest in the Tyson Fury situation the Euro 2012 rewind then is coming your way at 10 past 8 the sports news with Carl Milani at half past 8 and then Andy Mitten is going to join us at 10 to 9 and then a bit more golf after 9 o'clock before we bring you Tommy Welsh who was on last night's show uh, reflecting on the weekend's hurling. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. It is 7.35 and uh, Dan we wanted to go through uh, a couple of League of Ireland tidbits over the next little while I guess before we get into your breakthrough stars of the season which is one of the things we wanted to do we just got to talk about Rovers Bowes this Friday. Yeah it's I mean it's, it's a it's a sort of a strange old time in the League of Ireland it's actually a time of the year I quite enjoy um that a lot of the other football stops obviously you know for a lot of people are like they're in the sort of season is over mode um, but the League of Ireland being a summer campaign it's sort of it. it's always a little bit the, it comes back out of the summer break and it's always a little bit overshadowed by the international break naturally and like the hangover from that um, but now you have this sort of run over the next sort of month five weeks or so and even particularly with like I know it's a slight side story but even the fact that GEA is finishing so early this year and the yeah. calendar is like you know it's not as dense as it would be so like a lot of counties will, will obviously be will be gone and will have lost interest the European um, runs could coincide but that's what I'm saying zone, there's, yeah. a, there's a little sweet spot there in, in July where if, if 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 one of the clubs and it's more likely to be Shamrock Rovers just because of the nature of the competition they're in they get a couple of cracks at it but they actually do have an opportunity this year to sort of absorb a fair amount of like of interest and attention if they can get it right and, and there's also three clubs in the, the conference league as well so um, it's it's been like the, the fact that Rovers Bowes again it's sold out four days in advance it's sort of been in keeping with the story of the season and that um, crowds have been very good generally this year and I'm not sure if, if there's nec- I don't think it's necessarily reflected in like more discussion around the, around the place or more media coverage and stuff I think that's been pretty solid and stable as it has been over the last couple of seasons but there's no doubt that probably post Post COVID or whatever, like more people are going, and I think individually, 
clubs are doing more work to sort of hold their fan base. And I think sometimes, like we'll always, you always talk about the League of Ireland. Sometimes in very broad terms of, you know, how can we get more people interested? But almost like the first step to to that, really more than anything, is is getting your own sort of casual fan base tied down and becoming more regular. And I think that that's what you're seeing happen, and probably particularly in a, in Dublin, where you have a situation now in Tala. Um, and the Shamrock Rovers ground where I mean when they would have been doing maybe the third stand there and um, there might have been some people who might have thought well you know, the average attendance here is whatever you know three four thousand why do they almost need this 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 third stand or is this essential and now you're looking at a situation where it is sort of a build it and they will come type thing where they're sort of regularly getting more than seven thousand people in Tala and they're in the process of actually doing the fourth stand behind the goal which is going to they're starting construction work on that now, which is going to bring the capacity towards ten thousand. And now I'm looking at this going, yeah, this is this is this is justifiable. Yeah. Whereas you know six seven years ago there was a couple of thousand people going to their games, so it's mad. But yeah, Robert's Bowes is sold out like three four days in advance. That's like seven and a half thousand people going. Um, and there's been a definitely like a, a spectating revival of sorts in Dublin. Or maybe is it a revival, or is it more an overdue tapping into the population that's there? Yeah. Um. You know, because in my time, maybe covering the league, certainly um, Dublin has been. You'd, you'd often go around the country to say Cork or Dundalk or and, and Sligo at times, and, and talk about isn't it great the community are involved in this, and actually maybe just belatedly some of the clubs in Dublin are doing that but and because a lot of the media are based in Dublin maybe there's more positivity about the league this year because you're actually seeing and hearing a lot more people going to games you know which is a big point which is which is pretty important yeah you know? well, absolutely were, were you worried a couple of weeks ago that this title race is going to just run away from the neutral entirely and is it, <laughs> yeah. is it back on, on song again yeah I think this thing so like the dog beat Shamrock Rovers on, on Friday um, I think it was mentioned yesterday alright that like they're what they're five points behind now with a game in hand um, but it's still like yeah like it's there's still this probably niggling sense that Shamrock Rovers are going to probably win the league and probably run away from it unless unless Europe becomes a, such a distraction for them that it opens the door for someone else but like that certainly has been the issue with the last couple of seasons I mean Shamrock Rovers have won the league but probably haven't got a huge amount of external sort of love or, or you know not been part of like big team of the year discussions or anything like that because there's probably a sense that it's been quite comfortable for them in the league they haven't really been pushed mm. they haven't really faced the an outstanding challenger. I mean, you had that excellent Dundalk team, which you know, Stephen started with Stephen Kenny's era and was the dominant team and basically imploded through just bad sort of decisions off the pitch. And and almost Shamrock Rovers were coming along to probably try and knock Dundalk off their perch, but then the Dock took themselves off the perch before anyone could get there. They toppled themselves. And so Shamrock Rovers have taken the crown and now, bizarrely enough, it's possible that the, their challenger this year is going to be Dundalk again because they've got Stephen O'Donnell in and in a very short space of time he's probably built a, you know, built a sort of environment that may may look like it might endure and challenge and, and give us some kind of title race because certainly the last couple of seasons um, and I've even, you know, even Declan McBennett from RTE has made this point and stuff when there's criticism around TV coverage it doesn't help when come October, November, there's no, well, this is the game to win the league or this is the, the key match of the season like you might have had with some of those Cork and Dock games in the last decade. Every year there was almost a big, pivotal game. You haven't really had that 
the last couple of years and certainly it would help but it, it looked like Derry City were going to be the team that would challenge they've just their form has gone off a cliff yeah. since they played Rovers and Tala and were very good um, and now Dundalk seem to have sort of slipped on, slipped up the rails and they might be poised to challenge We wanted to go through some of the breakthrough stars of the League of Ireland season so far so what we've done is uh, what you've picked out five players like five yeah five. Oh, born like, the century yeah born the century because I think there's no doubt that the big change with the league in the last couple of years is the age profile and you have a situation now where I suppose you're always talking about like how do you make the league accessible to people and we now have a situation where I suppose in five six years time uh, hopefully you know the the Irish senior team has players like Nathan Collins and Jason Knight and the generation that's there at the moment Troy Power I know Gavin Bazuna did play here um, but still probably those players that play senior football here are the minority in terms of the senior squad although there's been a greater increase in traffic um, but but now obviously unless players go to Europe at 16, 17 the, the top talents will generally play here and you'll get to see them here maybe for a while before moving on now, I'm not sure if these players are all sort of uh, going to go on and play senior international football but they are all under the age of, sort of 22 or under and five big names this year so um, but I just run through them. Yeah, like maybe start with yeah. Andy Lyons. Yeah, so Andy Lyons is probably the 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 like he's not to describe him as a breakthrough star is maybe slightly unusual because he's quite a well known player with Bowes over the last couple of seasons, including like he broke into the Ireland twenty one squad while at Bowes, but he's one this year who has gone from Bowes to Shamrock Rovers over the winter, controversial transfer, but there was probably a lot of Bowes fans going, ah, do you know what, like. He's probably a bit like he's not as good as he used to be. He's right. maybe a little bit overrated. Um, I think he was keen to go to the UK, and I'm not sure if he was really getting uh, bites. There would have been compensation issues. I think that um, if 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 it come to it, the people from Bowes would say there wouldn't have been an issue there. But either way, he went to Shamrock Rovers, and it was almost a sense of yeah, like it's no no great loss to Bowes. And he's gone from he's gone from being a right back with Bowes to a left wing back at Shamrock Rovers and all of a sudden has brought his performances absolutely to another level. It's on an attacking level, isn't it? On an attacking level, yeah. He's he's scored quite a few goals in the opening sort of third of the season. Um, He he had international duty last month. He wasn't involved in in Dundalk last week and I presume it's a carry-on from that. Um, But he's been exceptionally good and probably one of those where Shamrock Rovers are trying to create probably, you know, some kind of elite environment out there and last year they took Danny Mandrio from from Bowes to Shamrock Rovers again at Bowes was mixed views around them and he went to Tala and he sort of went to another level got into an Ireland squad and in fact was on standby for the Ireland squad last month and Andy Lyons again is one who suddenly he's changed environment and for whatever reason he seems to have taken flight and now looks like a, a really good player who probably um, who will have UK proper UK interest now um, if it comes to pass he's definitely one that stood out this year yeah and is Stephen Bradley's decision to stay at the club do you think keeping this team a little bit more close now you mentioned that the English links were more during his Bose time though yeah yeah well it, it was more you see he was out of contract at Bose and right. basically the, it came to the stage where you, you're if you're an out of contract player I think, he, I think he was desperate to go to England to be honest but I'm not sure if there was any real like there was a bit of interest but not enough to maybe uh, trigger someone they would have had to do a deal with Bowes and then it, it, to move within one domestic club there's a smaller amount of money involved without getting bogged down in sort of compensation things but it was a little bit of a for Rovers it was a sense of are they just stockpiling a player here because he's a good local player but actually no they've 
they've turned him into or he has turned out to be uh, a siding that I think even Rovers players he's been better than they thought as well they would they would sort of tell you that privately yeah. uh, next up we've got Dundalk goalkeeper Nathan Shepherd. yeah a strange path on, on this man's career yeah so so he's um, he's the Welsh under 21 goalkeeper uh, so, so so Dundalk last season um, with all the other stuff that was going on off the park which contributed to their downfall they also had like dreadful goalkeeping issues to the point where they had um Albanian Italian goalkeeper called Alessio Abibi, who I think um, through the American ownership and management team, they thought that that this guy would be the answer, and he was not the answer. With all due respect to that, he was very confident. Good interview, <laughs> not as good as goal, not as good at goalkeeping, um, and it really cost them big time. There's and a they, book in the Italian yeah, links with Dundalk. Uh, oh, just, the just, like, there actually, I mean, there definitely is. Someone just needs to motivate themselves to, to, <laughs> to, to, to get stuck into it, but. Um, so they signed this Welsh run 21 goalkeeper Nathan Shepherd at the start of the year um, previously with Brentford um, Brentford B um, and he's quite young looking as well like, I'm, I think I'm not sure is he 22 or 21 um, but he probably looks younger you know he sort of has that sort of sort of choir boy look or something and in his first game or two um, he looked a little bit ropey you could see teams putting corners in on top of him and thinking they might dominate this fella and actually, since then, his performance levels have been really good. He's been ex- exceptionally good for Dundalk, really. Um, to the point, he was, I think when he joined, he was Welsh on 21 backup keeper, but he's played himself, he's made himself their first choice on the strength of his performances uh, with Dundalk. You know, that Welsh football has this programme, which is like they're probably like a sort of an against the head or a magazine style programme. And like there's there's three Welsh lads at Dundalk at the start of the season. And like they did this like 20 minute feature of up with the lads around Dundalk. Like our Welsh, like it's it's sort of a surreal thing that like you get more magazine TV coverage in Wales than there's no equivalent Irish version of this you know and they're like very interested as to why require so many of, of Welsh underage internationals playing in this town in Ireland it's very unusual but it's actually boosted their profile at home and Shepard's been excellent so he's he's sort of in their title challenge which may now exist he's been a key element of it Absolutely yeah. uh, next up we've got Sam Curtis at St Pat's and in the end of this morning uh, there's well David Kelly's just mentioning the links with Feyenoord which I think have been reported Yeah, yeah I think I think Neil O'Reardon and the Sun had mentioned that but this is the more this is what I'm talking about in terms of the type of player you're going to see in the league now like Sam Curtis is only 16 and um, probably at another time Sam Curtis would have gone to wherever some English club by now he would have gone on his 16th birthday or the summer of his 16th birthday um, it's different but like James Abanqua who played for Pats broke through last year um, would have been slightly older than Curtis is now but got his move to Udinese and he's, he's on his way there this summer um, Curtis is a right back um, he's a defender but he's been playing right back um, having previously been with Shamrock Rovers and played for their second team I think at the age of like 14 and a half but then met a move to some Pats which was sort of controversial in some ways to people um, but Pats have obviously promised him a degree of first team football and yeah, he's he's had some tough days. There's no doubt. Like there was one game recently against Shells. He was taken off at half time. He was on a yellow. He was struggling, but he played like what seventy two hours later and was very good. Which sort of suggests a degree of character. And this is the point. Like he's getting exposure to first team men's football at a good level at sixteen. And it's no surprise now you're t- you're hearing about Feyenoord and, and other European clubs. And you are going to see more of this. You're going to see clubs playing players here at sixteen. 17 because these are going to be the top top ones of that generation um, 
but obviously you need to make this an industry so sometimes with that I and mean, Curtis is clearly good enough to play now there's nothing tokenistic about it but obviously you will see clubs will probably be happy to expose players because that's going to increase their value as well too um, because everyone dreams of a sort of a Gavin Bazulu style sale which has yeah. now basically ended up being worth around 3 million quid to Shamrock Rovers yeah yeah serious windfall we'll try and come back to that conversation a little Sorry, later on yeah. in the, like, but it's, it's really interesting especially with Carl Heffernan news yesterday uh, as well about um, that, that pathway just to finish up on the five players uh, Jack Moylan of, of Shells is next up yeah just to, yeah, to be quick Jack Moylan like he's Damien Duff Shelburne to give them their full title um, he was on loan uh, at Wexford from Bowes last season did well in the first division but the first division is a little bit out of sight out of mind to some degree um, and on over the winter turned out for whatever reason he was allowed leave Bowes and join Shells so I think uh, it was a bit of a low profile signing but some people in the game were saying no this is a proper player look at Efrem he's been excellent he's a sort of a number 10 creative style player uh, it's his first season in the Premier Division and he's getting better and better all the time so he's definitely one to look out for and um, then uh, Brandon well, actually sorry just on Jack yeah. Moylan sorry just before we move on like it's very hard to judge it just yet because it's season one under Damien Duff but is your sense that the expectation of Duff to be able to take these younger players and to be able to build them into something better and to, I guess impart all his wisdom on these players yeah. is that working so far? I, I appreciate it's very very hard I think it's, to, to, yeah. to get a sense of I think it's going okay I think it is going okay I know they lost last week but they prior to the break they did one I think four in a row before they lost to Shamrock Rovers Duff signed a lot of the same type of player sort of with that profile young on the way up not necessarily well known within the league but with a desire to get better um, you know training sort of full time hours in football and maybe budgets dictated some of their recruitment as well but they're generally a quite focused hungry team quite united you see they're you know socially they, they go on very well and stuff and uh, no I think I think he's doing well Right, I think I think he's doing well. I think it's got a chance of of, of getting better there. Yeah, good stuff. And then uh, finally, we're moving on to uh, Brandon Kavanagh of Derry, who moved from Shamrock Rovers. Yeah, like to, there's a couple you could have put in here. Um, I mean, Brandon Kavanagh. I suppose you need to have some kind of Derry representation. There's probably Brandon Kavanagh and the goalkeeper Brian Maher Maybe I could have mentioned as well as the Ireland 21 goalkeeper. Um, but Kavanagh again. I suppose you're talking maybe about players people might want to go and watch. You know, and he's again. Um, playmaker type player he can play in the number 10 or sort of left or right um, he was at Shamrock Rovers and he seemed to be out on loan all the time um, and Derry just took a chance at him by giving him a sort of a proper sort of long term contract he's moved from from Dublin to Derry and he's done well again he's someone who when he broke through at Rovers at 17-18 people thought he was going to be on the conveyor belt of talent that goes away and it hasn't quite happened but um Probably like a sort of a, in some people's eyes, maybe some like Wes Houlihan characteristics. Brandon Kavanagh, he's, he's small, he's not, you know, he's not the biggest fella, but good to watch. And he's been, uh, yeah, one of the names this year that's probably his first full season as a sort of a first teamer in the Premier Division. And he's done well. Right, okay, very interesting. So th- those are your five, uh, like an arbitrary enough number five. Yeah, just look out, yeah. yeah. There's plenty more as well. And we're going to come back to that conversation if you have time throughout the show, because as I say, there's uh, plenty of reaction to that and there's kind of wider conversations around pathways. But at 7.53 on this Tuesday morning, you might have seen at the end of last week the news that Tyson Fury was denied entry into the United States after trying to get on a flight from Manchester to New York. Uh, the decision was reportedly taken by the US authorities because of his links with Daniel Kinahan and Nicola Talent, Investigations Editor with the Sunday World, is with us on the line to discuss. Uh, Nicola, thanks a million for taking the call. 
Morning. Uh, so what actually happened last Friday? Yeah, last Friday evening, very late, I just got um, a tip off that Tyson Fury had been denied entry to the US. Um, and, you know, it appeared that he had been in Liverpool that evening. But um, the fact is he tried to, he certainly booked a flight um, for midday from Manchester that Friday, but was told that he wasn't gaining access. He's obviously on the, the list, the famous US sanctions list. So I suppose that's a, a big story for Tyson Fury and for his fans. And going forward, if he's banned from the States, you know, the question is, how does that affect his career? And um, I know he said he's retired, but there seems to be, I don't know that much about boxing and that, but boxers seem to constantly retire and get back in the ring. Um, so, yeah, he's he's part of a growing group of people who are finding themselves in serious problems with the states because of the US sanctions on the Kinahan organised crime group. Had you realised before last Friday that he was on the US sanctions list? I think they all probably know, you know, as the time goes on and more and more of them are getting word that they can't enter the country. They probably suspect it. Um, My understanding is that a lot of them are actually booking flights to test the waters, you know, to see whether or not they're going to be given their, their visas are allowed in and, um, you know, they aren't necessarily needing to be there for something, but they're, they're just checking out if they're, if they're one of the, the band. So what, what happens uh, or what happened last week? Is it, is it a situation where he manages to make it to the plane and it's at the other side in the States where he's turned away or is it, is it over here? Where... No, 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 no. He didn't, he didn't, um, he didn't fly. Right. They, you know, they're informed beforehand. I'm not exactly sure how it works in the, UK, in the UK because they do their immigration on the other side here in Ireland. We can do immigration clearance on this side, but certainly, um, you know, they obviously have to have their documents in place before they even board. And it was at that point that he was told he wasn't going to be granted access. So this banned list consists of roughly 600 people. Uh, Like, I guess the vast, vast majority of them, if not all of them, have no real links to crime. I guess this is something of of a wake up for them. And then on the other side of things, there's possibly a sense of fear mongering from the, the US side of things saying, listen, you do have, albeit tenuous links to a crime boss, you will have to pay some sort of consequence for that. Yeah, I mean, look, there's been over the years with the Kinahan organised crime and their involvement, you know, so so deeply into boxing. There has been stories about people not being able to travel to Vegas for Conor McGregor fights, for things like that, a lot of them being turned back. So there had been a sort of a list which I would consider was more kind of an inner circle or maybe people closer to the actual crime end of things. But this now seems to have been expanded into boxers and other sports people who were working with Kinahan possibly and his associates, but may not be involved at all in organised crime, but they have found themselves now on this list. Like Tyson Fury, you know, back in 2017 was signed up to the the MGM gym at that stage, founded by Daniel Kinahan and Matthew Macklin. And I mean, I think he has been very public about his relationship with Daniel Kinahan. He has backtracked on it uh, since the sanctions were announced, but he did famously, you know, call him out on that video that went viral 
um, when he announced that the fight had been organised with Anthony Joshua and he thanked him for brokering that. That was a turning point in a way um, when it came to Daniel Kinahan's ongoing involvement in MTK, which he had, or they had at least insisted, he had completely nothing to do with and he'd sold out of it. Um, him and Macklin were, it said to have sold it completely in 2016. It was at that point that Daniel Kinahan moved out to Dubai. But if you look at the timeline, at the exact same time, MTK removes itself from Europe and centres itself in Dubai as well. So the suspicions were always there. MTK were very, very um, adamant that Kinahan had nothing to do with it. But I think when Tyson Fury called him out as the fixer, um, that muddied the waters a lot. Now, again, the regulations within the boxing seem to be that you can work with a boxer, um, you know, without having to be licensed. And none of that has been fixed. That all still seems to remain very, um, you know, very liquid, all that situation. I think um, boxing will have to start to, you know, clean up its regulations and, and clean itself up. Look, Kinahan is toxic now from the point of view of organised crime and from the point of view of boxing. The three Kinahans, the father and the two sons, are essentially hunted at the moment. There's a $5 million bounty on each of their heads for information to bring them to justice in the US. And um, anybody connected to them is is feeling the ripple effect of that. You mentioned there earlier that maybe you know, Tyson Fury doesn't get back in the ring and he may not necessarily need to go to the States to fight. But you'd imagine, regardless of whether it's in-ring work or out-of-the-ring work, the United States is an unbelievably lucrative market to somebody like Tyson Fury. But then you've got 600 people on a, on a list and you'd imagine that uh, a huge amount of them will be put out to say the very least about their inability to travel to the United States. So how does their status change over the next little while? Is it essentially when Daniel Kinahan comes to justice that, that that list will be reassessed or can the United States actually address this on a case-by-case basis? I honestly don't know how they 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 organise that. I mean, you know, it's always been that in the States, if you have a criminal offence, you can't enter. And, and ordinary people also with, with criminal convictions can be banned from travelling there. So um, I don't believe they have a timeline for that. I don't think they have a particular. It's not like getting penalty points that you eventually kind of work your way out of it. Um, so, you know, it just it's not clear exactly what the States are going to do or are exactly uh, where those 600 people would be in, say, for example, 10 years' time, whether it's a lifelong ban or not, um, that information isn't coming to us, um, certainly not freely as of yet. I'm sure the individuals concerned can try and book a flight in another year or maybe another six months to see how they get on. Um, you know, high-profile guy like Tyson Fury, a lot of those people on that list and associates of Daniel Kinahan we wouldn't be talking about here and nobody would know who they are, but they remain on the list. But somebody high profile like Tyson Fury, any um, travel he does is kind of followed either by the media or through his own social media. So he's not somebody that's going to be able to slip in there unnoticed. Um, But I genuinely don't know whether or not it's a never ending ban or if that ban lifts when the Kinahan organization is as, it's seen by law enforcement removed off the, the map. 
when it comes to MTK as a whole, or the, the former MTK, uh, th- there's been reports recently that the investigations are continuing into a company that is, uh, to all the intents and purposes, a folded company at this point. Can you tell us a little bit about what's actually going on there? Well, MTK weren't named in the sanctions. They weren't one of the companies that was named. There was uh, seven individuals and a number of companies named. One of them was a boxing company, um, but it wasn't MTK. But nonetheless, they folded within a week of those sanctions. And, um, you know, I think they're inextricable links to Daniel Kinahan and uh, has to be seen as as part of the reason for that. Um, the money laundering, the wider money laundering investigation, this is the way it, it, it is at the moment. The Kinahan organisation has been identified not only now by Irish law enforcement and by Europol, it's been named in a number of Europol reports over the past few years. Um, but it's been recognised now by the US as being a trans-global organised crime network. Um, and those individuals, the, the three Kinahans and their four associates have been named and are on, you know, they've been publicly named by the states. So their uh, future is pretty clear. They are wanted. Um, but when it comes to the companies around them, my understanding is that further sanctions will be coming. And this is a new form of policing. So I don't really have anything to lean back on in this because it does appear to be a blueprint for policing of these gangs who become so massive that they're, they're, they're seen as trans-global as opposed to just organised crime gangs. And the idea behind it is to for the continents to work together. I mean, Australia is also working with the the US with the Irish and with Europol um, and for them to work together and I suppose to try and suffocate the oxygen supply to the grouping. A number of years ago, you saw Joaquin Melchapo Guzman be, uh, he was eventually caught after many years and brought to the US where he was jailed for the rest of his life. But in the background were his sons who are now running the Sinaloa cartel and you know, they're still very significant players and the money was all left behind, I suppose, in Mexico. In this case, what the policing plan is trying to do is to bring in the heads of the organisation, but to suffocate the the, the organisation that remains as it cannot continue uh, running its drugs and weapons shipments. So they're trying to basically take away the money supply. Now, the money is all really where the power comes from. They can get sanctioned in certain territories across the world with that money. When Kinahan Sr., certainly, who does have convictions, uh, Christy Kinahan Sr. has a conviction for heroin trafficking here in Ireland. He has convictions for money laundering across Europe. He's been in jail in Belgium, um, in Spain, etc. But he was still welcomed into the US, as we see from the sanctions. He was running a very successful um, aviation company and he was attending events publicly, etc. So, you know, the U- United Arab Emirates um, will say that they they only deal with people without convictions, but there's a clear example of somebody who was welcomed in with a string of convictions and, and a clear background in organised crime, but who came with enough money to set up companies there, employ Emiratis, and, um, you know, he was able to move and mingle within both society and the business community there. 
So, you know, you got money and you can go places and you can stay places and you can gain sanctuary. But without that, it's taking another level of power away from these these cartels. Nicola, is there any sense on, you mentioned our own obviously referenced MTK, but then ProBellum as well as the other sort of you know, sports promotion company that's had to sort of, you know, distance itself in some degree from Daniel Kinnan. But is there any sense where they stand at the moment now? Because obviously they're still actively sort of pushing events and involved in various events, but presumably um, they're coming under, under some degree of scrutiny there. They certainly have come under a lot of scrutiny and have denied it vociferously, um, have employed a PR company and a law firm in order to um, salvage their reputation and try and shut down any discussion about them. But not talking specifically about Probellum, but what I can say is that in the years leading up to the sanctions, um, my understanding is that the um, a lot of the Kinahan money was spread about a bit more than it previously had been. And there was attempts by them to widen the net in in case the law enforcement came after the finances. So there are still a lot of companies that are out there that are running and that are attempting to wash the funds um, and obviously put it back into the pockets of the leaders of the organization who are under so much pressure now. you have to remember that the Kinahan Organised Crime Group is working like a massive big business conglomerate. It has huge expenses in wages every month. And um, there's a lot of people that have to be paid, that have to be kept happy. And um, even within the prison system, there are people that need to be kept on a wage. And, you know, keeping that up, you need to bring in a lot of money to fund that 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 those pay slips basically. Um, you know, I don't think it's it's um an exaggeration to say that they have they're paying out at least a million a month in wages to to various people across the, the world. And that will be where the real pressure is for them because you know there's five million per head in uh money for information regarding them that'll bring them in and they need to keep everybody happy and uh, they're in a very, very bad and precarious situation at the moment. But I think that we'll see as the months go on and possibly into next year, you'll see the effects of all this maybe uh, either shutting down or you'll see other businesses go to the wall as well. But again, I'm not talking about Probellum there. Um, Probellum have distanced themselves for the moment and um, while they have obviously lost certain contracts. They're continuing the business at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just kind of on that point then, um, I know this is kind of more maybe the, the intricacies of, of the boxing world and what they might do next. But like... The, oh there was... God, don't ask me about that. <laughs> uh, well, it, it's, well like, I guess we can kind of make this kind of like a wider conversation. Just the, the point I was going to make was around um, the, the report recently that Sky Sports asked their fighters to sign a document to confirm that they have no ties to companies previously linked uh, to Daniel Kinahan. So the letter was circulated basically a one-page code of ethics um, from Sky Sports and uh, it required each participant 
to deny working in any capacity with promotional outfit Propellum or the now defunct managerial conglomerate MTK Global, I should say, was um, the uh, the letter was uh, obtained by BoxingScene.com, mm. just to give them the, the proper credit there. So that, that would suggest to me that maybe there are actual uh, active efforts in order to prevent this stuff happening within the boxing game as opposed to a sort of, oh, well, you know, work away behind the scenes and, and we'll react accordingly and try and wash our hands of it after the fact. Yeah, but I mean, Sky would maybe need to go back a little bit further than that because, um, I mean, uh, for me, the most obvious connection there is the fact that Matthew Macklin founded MGM with Daniel Kinahan in 2012. That company went on, we were told to be sold, but it became MTK. And the US sanctions, if you look at what has been said now very publicly and on the record about the Kinahan organization. It's not that they set up in 2016. It's that they were fully operational in Europe for the last two decades. And, uh, you know, Daniel Kinahan has been clearly placed at the very top of that organization. So to me, that is the most obvious connection that there is. Um, and yet by, by not uh, going back that little bit further, they're clearly, um, you know, ignoring that fact. Uh, can I just ask, lastly, Nicola, you mentioned earlier on that there might be further sanctions incoming for the cartel and maybe those linked with it. What will those sanctions actually look like? The same is probably as what we've already seen, that, uh, you know, companies may be named and individuals may be named who are either wanted by law enforcement or with those companies, if anybody operates with them, if anybody does business with them, they end up either with huge fines or before the courts in the US. They're pretty powerful. I think you can see with the sanctions on Russia and the oligarchs, they're not something that change everything overnight. They will slowly deplete the power and and the financial prowess of companies or individuals. Um, but I think they're they're pretty damning those sanctions. And you know, the investigation into the Kinahan Organized Crime Group is the biggest and most transglobal that any organization in Europe has ever seen. I think there's only been one or two Bosnian cartels that have been named before by the US. The US have enough troubles themselves with drugs. Their borders are being saturated with everything coming in over from Mexico. And they have a huge problem with, with drug-related deaths in the deaths as in DEATHS in the country. And um, they have a huge problem with drugs and weapons and gangs themselves. But for them to come on board to fight an outside gang, a European gang. It just shows the enormity of the Kinahan organization and, um, you know, the power of policing working together. Sorry, Nick, that's actually just struck me. Uh, just one last question that we haven't had you on, I think, since uh, the Taylor Serrano fight, after which there was uh, plenty of talk around potentially a, a homecoming fight for, for Katie Taylor uh, and some questions regarding the security threat being diminished somewhat in Ireland and that the, the Gardaí and security forces here are pretty happy or compared to the past, more happy to, to have a big bout take place in Ireland. What's your read on all that and in, in how the, the authorities view uh, a boxing event taking place in Ireland this year? I think it would certainly, um, it would certainly 
depend on who it was that was fighting. Um, Katie Taylor is got no links to the Kinahan organization and, you know, has a very clean record, is one of the sporting heroes of Ireland. And I've no doubt that, um, you know, a, a competition could be put on with security in regard to that. But I do think that there could be other boxers that maybe the security risk threat might be higher. The Kinahan Hutch feud has absolutely been depleted and thankfully there haven't been murders in quite some time. But the um, underlying issues that remain between those two gangs are still there. And I don't think that here that the Guardi have um, have laid down their own weapons when it comes to it. Uh, the threat is ongoing of that feud reigniting. And despite the fact that there's many people in prison who were prepared to take part in it, there's still very many people on the outside, um, you know, and, and it would be it would be naive to think that, you know, nothing could happen again. Of course, it could. Those feuds really are constantly ongoing. Um, the Kinahan organisation have more problems, really, than than their rows with former colleagues here on the ground in Ireland. But nonetheless, I think that um, there is a saying about the sting of a dying wasp. That, and I don't think that the Gardaí here, with the success they've had, would be sitting back if a boxing event was being planned that possibly could reignite any of that um, rivalries. I, I don't think they'd be sitting back and, and hoping for the best. I, I think very much so they'd be engaging on that. But I wouldn't think that the, a Katie Taylor fight would hold anything like those same risks or any risks possibly. Um, you know, she, she has no connections to it. And I think her sport is a very different, a very different, her way of sport is a very different thing. Um, she is a proper sporting national hero um, and there's been no suggestion that she's been funded by anything untoward. Nicola, great stuff. Thanks a million for joining us this morning. Okay, thank you. Cheers. Uh, Nicola Talent is Investigations Editor with the Sunday World. Uh, it is 8.15. You're with us here on OTBAM, which is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Now, up next, we're going on a journey to that fateful few weeks at uh, your 2012. Uh, Ten years old this month, you'll be delighted to know. We'll be joined on the line by former Republic of Ireland striker Simon Cox, who played in that tournament for Giovanni Trapattoni's side. But before that, here's Limerick's Groat Hegarty with Joe on Off the Ball last night, talking about that goal in the recent Munster final. Have a look. So tell me this, Munster final, you score yet another outstanding goal in your lengthy catalogue. Do you stroll into school the next day? People, come on. What, 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 everyone, applaud me. What, yeah. you, you're the main man walking down the hallways, high-fiving everyone. <laughs> no, well, I was actually, we were actually finished there. We were on some holidays. So oh, we course, finished up huh? on the Friday. We finished up on the Friday just before the Munster Finals. So, um, Nuisance, you I didn't get the acclaim. That. No, I didn't. I didn't get to do. I didn't get to, to go into school on the Monday morning. I was I was resting and recovering on the Monday morning, as you can imagine. But uh, I, yeah, look, it was one of this. It was one of the sweeter ones. I it was. That's uh, beautiful. See, you're yes. going to do the. You're going to do the GA thing here and be like, ah, look, sure, look, you know. And no, no, no. It was. It was. Look, it was. It was definitely the best goal I've ever scored. I, I'd be. I'd be surprised, but hopeful if I ever. If I ever score a better one than that, I'm not sure if I will. But yeah. the score in the Munster final in a packed hurlers, you know, Limerick and Clare. There's a massive rivalry going on through the years. Uh, like conditions were conditions were tough on the day, so 
it was a special one for sure. I'm not taking away from it at all. I'm sure. Right. I'm sure I'll be reminded of it forever when, when, when uh, in years to come. You know, what a roar! It must have felt like the whole place erupted. It did. It did. And like I normally don't go too mad. Like I've I've been lucky enough to score a couple of goals over the last number of years. I don't go too mad. I kind of give a few of my few of my friends kind of give me a little slag for the little finger wag that I normally do but <laughs> I kind of found myself just jumping up into the air as well like I, I got caught up in the in the emotion of it all because because it was such an incredible atmosphere especially at the start of the game and the parade and stuff like that so um yeah look it's it's great I, it's a great moment to think back on but ho- hopefully there's there's more to come soon OTB AM with Gillette get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs razor with exfoliating bar You know what that sound means. It means the glorious path of nostalgia is in front of us. Uh, the reluctant, the most reluctant nostalgia piece potentially ever uh, is a Euro 2012 look back. We're going to be joined by Simon Cox of the Republic of Ireland who played in that squad in uh, just a moment. Dan McDonald has been with us in studio all morning, just wating for this moment, waiting for your opportunity that to oh, that was like yourself. It was like an alarm call that you had in your head throughout that entire month. Uh, at around this time, 10 years ago, the... Irish fans had departed. It was uh, a year and three days ago that game against Italy, to be precise. Oh. So, what? Where were you today? Three? Or I was years still ago? in the country. Still in the country. I was still in the country. Um, I actually. So Sopot was the base, and again, like I think most Irish fans were there would remember Sopot. Some people might have flown into Poznan, say directly and stuff. I mean, I always hear the stories of. Uh, I think. I think I was. I think last week I posted a tweet about the Spain anniversary game, and some guy responded to say. Um, that the Spanish game was the second game and he had to leave at half time in that match to begin his overland like you know I think a flight and then a, a sort of a flight ferry and then across Europe trip to Poznan for the final game oh against gosh. Italy which was a complete dead rubber I remember speaking to people at the time who were flying out for the third game thinking we won't do the first two let's let's fly out for the third the match stages. Yeah, so I, and maybe stay on for the knockout stages so but I, I stayed in the country so I went back to Sopot so it was a little bit like 28 days later or something where you <laughs> arrive back in because uh, a lot of people had gone home from Poznan but I had to go back I think I had one night left in the hotel and maybe I'd left some stuff there and you walk through like the town and it's just like deathly it's like oh that's actually a square which previously it was just like this massive human body it's just like you know people being chairlifted around the place I mean, many of them FBI officials <laughs> and and um, then you get like you get to the hotel and there was a package deal uh, that a lot of the Irish media were on so I walked in and, and like sort of the person in reception vaguely recognised you and it was like uh, oh yeah you're back and I, I sort of said yeah and I was like, yeah, I'm the only one here. And you could just see the look of horror because clearly the, the deal had maybe in, included this sense that you know, an extra night, if everyone, I think if everyone got through to the knockout and actually would have triggered like a, an extension of your night in the hotel, I think I was the only one that went back. So they practically much had an empty hotel <laughs> that night. And it was just me um, who then like, you know, had one night there and then I stayed on for the rest of the tournament and... and that was that was that. Yeah. Twenty eight days later, it was, to the, it was to the bizarre. Show. Yeah, I think Emma Malone would have stayed on as well, and maybe one or two others. But uh, otherwise, it was that sense of yeah, it, the party's over. You mentioned the Spain game. I mean, how could we ever forget this? You're trying to you're trying to file at this point, I presume. Is uh, well. I mean, sadly, it, was, it wasn't too hard to file in this game because there was no sense of like a, a last-minute goal is going to come along and 
uh, you know, lead to some kind of rewrite. Mm. I mean, sadly, that game was that game was over from pretty early, really, wasn't it? I mean, that was the thing. It wasn't one for like last minute sort of or eighty fourth was it Robbie Brady and Lille was what maybe five minutes to go, and that's like frantic rewrite but it's a happy story rewrite whereas I think that was the thing about just covering that tournament I know it's just a media point but it was uh, why, why I sort of <laughs> found that hard going is that from the Croatian game onwards it was just a lengthy post-mortem like every day it was almost well, what went wrong and then okay the Spanish game was a brief flurry of well actually maybe maybe just maybe there's a chance you know maybe there's a chance but then that chance was was extinguished pretty quickly, and then you had this like drag of a build up to the Italy game, where it's just like, well, how do you put a spin? It's like, oh, but wouldn't it be great to get a point or you know, just sort of complete dead rubber vibe. I mean, like Ireland have never played in a dead rubber major tournament match before. You know, it's sort of like it's sort of a surreal thing where it's like yes you're in the stadium and this is a big major tournament game and yes it's part of the rota so a lot of people around Europe are watching this game yet I don't know it obviously had meaning to people who were involved I know I talk about like one of the things was the trap didn't actually really rotate and give players give some of the squad players a game which just created their misery like Stephen Hunt did that sort of amazing column at the end of the tournament just summed up the feelings of a lot of the fringe players but it was just just this long, relentless sort of, you know, players didn't want to be talking to us. We probably didn't want to be talking to players because what what can you actually say? Mm. You know, oh, big game against Italy. It's like everyone knew it was a little bit of a sh- charade in some respects. You yeah. know, that, that the party was really over. Like I, I wonder, as like time goes by, will your twenty twelve like be used as as some sort of informing factor in like being a cultural touchstone of that era because mm. like it really is like if it was a successful tournament like I think you know things like the the group of debt uh, which our group became known as and like the, the whole sort of trying to rebound out of a recession might have become a, a much bigger thing that was married to a sporting occasion which like I mean you can't marry the two things together but it's something that we did pretty successfully when it comes to things like Italia 90 and uh, Euro 88 and Ireland waking out of its slumber and you know <laughs> yeah, Jack's I... army helping us along that way I wonder if you know Euro 2012 had been a successful venture for Ireland would it have the same level of adoration because like that's how we all that's what we envisaged before Euro 2012 like I mean especially people of a certain age who had 10 years without a major tournament their only memories of 2002 is like a, a television on wheels coming into their classroom yes. or people sitting there leaving certain like whispering around the, the, the exam hall people like who weren't even alive for Italia 90 but have memories of Italia 90 because they've watched really in the yeah. years so much that was the entire experience of Ireland at a tournament and 2004, 2006 were, were heartbreaking qualification campaigns 2010 was the worst of the lot Ugh. and then all of a sudden Estonia got drawn out and we're, we're going to a tournament baby it's like the, the good times are back and sure we get Sean St. Ledger's goal which was a beautiful moment for a, a period of time but like I mean compared to that like I mean it, it just must be one of the highest expectations for a tournament or, or for any sort of Irish sporting event that just didn't meet the reality I mean and you capture it there I mean I suppose every, everyone sees Irish major tournaments through where they were at that point in their life, right? And I suppose I see Euro 2012, I would have turned 30 that year. So for a lot of my friends, say, we were too young and too broke to go to the World Cup in 2002. Like yeah. We thought about it, but just couldn't. Like 19, 18, 19, just didn't have the money to go to Asia. Some people did our age, but not, not many did. 
And I remember writing this around the time that so like the previous tournament experience was 1994 in America, which wouldn't have been cheap. But obviously, a lot of Irish people went, but there would be a lot of Irish people over there. But it was sort of a mainland Europe tournament for the first time since 1990. So for like for anyone sort of under the age of maybe 40 that was there yeah, like there was, and there was that real sense building up to it that it was like this it was like this is our time this is our generation's chance to be the adult generation during Italia 90 and USA 94 that you would have grown up and watched them and got a sense this is big I can but, be I'm really in the but it's like yeah exactly like, this is it like you know everyone get, let's let's watch this and get down to like the Walkins 10 roundabout yeah. or something or like the, the Polish version of it and that it became so deflating so quickly it was that realization that no, this is not this is not our moment. And um, like some people would say that like and we're not mentioning the Saipan word again, but that was the end of the age of innocence to some degree. That the discourse around the team became a lot more cynical, a lot more fractured. Um, and so 2012 turned sour very, very quickly. And you have even the Roy Keane, say, representation in the studio having a go with the fields of Athen Roy. And you had this conflict between people going, should we be celebrating this? This is crap. This is dreadful and this is a great celebration and of course from my perspective you, you can't get away from the fact that like you know the FBI at the time like the whole thing was massively cosmetic it was like we're all having a party uh, yet at home like Monaghan United went bust during that tournament like a Premier Division team in our country folded during that and it was like a footnote because like, well we're over here with the tournament like can we not not no be dealing can we not be dealing with this here but it actually like sums up the complete dysfunction of the game and like in many respects that's why the whole year 2012 thing was like one big lie it was like here we are having a great time over here in Poland and isn't it brilliant we're here but actually like it was built on like foundations made of sand and everything that's come out subsequently you hear a lot of the stories the anecdotal tales around 2012 it was like the extreme version of what was coming down the tracks and you know in a strange way um and I found it massively disappointing at the time but like what 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 course does history take if Ireland did well in that tournament do you just prolong that sort of possibly uh, you know and 2016 was a much better major tournament experience and obviously there was that accompanied a lot of mad stuff going on in the background too um, maybe if there were 24 teams in 2012 Ireland get a different group uh, it's a bit softer it's easier to that what, what, group. what, what yeah. way does it run who knows what way does it run? Um, we've got Simon Cox on the line Simon you're very welcome to the show how are you getting on yeah, I'm fine, lads. How are you? I, I'm not sure whether to say I'm sorry for bringing this up or, or what to say. I, I presume it's not an overly fond memory for you, but it's still playing and starting against Spain in a major tournament. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's still probably the uh, the best memory I've got in, in football in terms of you know being at a major tournament. But ultimately, what transpired throughout the tournament probably wasn't uh, isn't something that lives fond in the memory. Simon, I was just going to say that because you're probably in that s- small group of players in that squad who didn't get 2016. Like, well, actually, maybe it was quite a number of that squad actually didn't. But it's probably a strange one because the ones who went to 2016, you hear them say, well, it was, it was a better experience than 2012. But obviously, you didn't get that chance. So, like, it was for you, it was still a special point in your, in your history. Like, I, I presume the reference point you would have a, with a lot of Ireland supporters who ever t- talked to you is that Spain game, right? Like that is the moment that comes up. Yeah, I think it's the, it's probably the the biggest question I I always get is what was it like playing at that tournament? What was it like playing against teams like Spain and, and Italy? But ultimately we weren't there just to take part. And, and for me, 
you know, listen, we we wanted to do well. Of course we did. But then as soon as you get the group that we got, I mean, it was always going to be difficult. Um, but I just think that had the group, if the group had been the same, which is fine, but had the games been drawn in a different order, then maybe we would have had a little bit more of a chance. Um, you know, yeah, if we had got off to a good start, it might have given us a, a bit of a bounce. But had we played, say, Italy first, then Croatia, you know, you probably, you, you could have come out with you know, two points possibly and then it would have been hang on to your hats for, for the Spain game. But, um, you know, it just wasn't to be and we, and we didn't, whether we believed we would get out of the group or not or, or you know, how, you're sort of digging into people's mindsets then. But, um, you know, listen, it, for me, it was it's still the biggest uh, accomplishment for me in my career. The, the group is a is a problem when, when it comes to like uh, expectations and, and trying to get out of it. I mean, it's just the, the talent you guys were up against. In terms of the stuff that you could control, in terms of the organisation, in terms of logistics, when, when did you realise that maybe the, the tournament hadn't been handled perfectly and maybe things could have been done a little bit differently? Well, we went to we went to Italy to start with. We went to Monte Catini um, and we flew in there and then we we played a game against Hungary um, leading up to the tournament. Then we went uh, obviously over to Poland and um, which was great. You know, travel was fine. Uh, got on the bus to, to the hotel, checked in, you know, there was obviously a little bit of concern over families getting there and where they stayed and all that sort of stuff. But, because they weren't allowed to stay in the same hotel. They had to stay in a different hotel. So it was all of that sort of stuff. That's you know, that's part and parcel of that, I guess. Um, then we had the open training session. And I mean, you guys have probably been to loads of tournaments and, and been around sort of finals and things like that. When you do open training sessions, you get you put in a stadium and you and you get um, supporters that come and, and watch. And all they want to see really is sort of crossing and finishing. It's just a... It's just a time for the players who have done a little bit of travelling to stretch your legs, say hello to people. Um, we did we did possession and we did like full on training session without any fun, um, <laughs> which was which was trapped. You know, they I mean? like it was it was all business and no no pleasure really. Um, but we sort of looked at it and and we played a possession game with no goals and. It, when you, if you if you were a, if you were a supporter coming to watch that you'd be thinking like I've travelled all this way to come watch you know not necessarily the, the open training session but see the lads enjoy training you know get to see speak to people and all that sort of stuff and um, you know I've come to watch a, a possession training session so that wasn't wasn't a great start and then uh, but then all of a sudden you know you get into it and um, you know, the build up to the first game, the Croatia game is, it just intensifies, you know, 10, 100 fold, really. You had to, didn't the players have to sort of barter for a day off around that time, wasn't it? To the build up to that first game, there was like, I, I seem to vaguely recall at the time, an, e- an email or something coming through that like training had been called off. And I think it was a, a product of this like intense build up that you, you had, right? Yeah, I, I can sort of vaguely remember that we'd, we'd gone from... So, obviously, the lads who were playing in the Premier League and the lads who were playing in the Championship at the time obviously finished the season at different times. So, the lads who were playing in the Championship, I think, finished first. And then they then went over to, to Dublin 
and did a certain amount of days prior to, to everybody else meeting up. Then obviously the, the Premier League boys came in um, and then they did a few days. Then we went off to Italy. Then we played the game. So you, you're talking, I don't know, second week of May, probably as soon as, soon as the season finishes, talking second week of May all the way through to the final day of, uh, of the campaign. So final day of the Italy game, you're probably talking two days off. Um, but that was probably Trap's way. It's the Italian way. It's live, breathe, sleep, eat, drink, everything football without any respite. Um, but he sort of got that confused with what the island way is and compared to what the Italian way is. So, um, yeah, it, it was a little bit tough. But listen, ultimately, you're going into a major tournament. So it's not exactly going to be a walk in the park. How did Trap respond to this picture that Dan painted earlier on of the Ireland team being relatively close to this massive stag party? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think it was that, but um, he's, listen, he <clears throat> he's such an experienced manager um, and he understands what it takes to be successful. But the difference in cultures is is sort of chalk and cheese, really. Um the Irish way is to be at the tournament, to enjoy the uh, the tournament, um, to try and do well at the tournaments uh, as well as all the games uh, prior. But the Italian way is to win tournaments, is is to to win every game that they play in. So it's it, there's a difference in in sort of mindset in that way. Um, we were we weren't there on a stag party. <laughs> no, no. To be clear, we weren't suggesting Sorry, you were yeah, you were on a stag party, but it was more so the the environment of the hotel being in the middle of Sopot which was absolutely chaotic that's what I, the reference to I think like the players were spoken about it previously that you'd sort of take a walk down the town and it was manic like outside the window you could almost hear the fans outside as opposed to it being a sort of a the team staying in a retreat you were like right in the middle of the action if you know what I mean yeah I don't, I don't think I think put it this way we because we were on the beach as well and uh, and it was nice Nice setting, to be fair, when the families come over, you, if you had kids at the time, you could sit and play with them on the beach for a little bit. Um, but you'd complain if you were miles away as well in the middle of nowhere. Um, so I feel like I get the I get the uh, the idea of where it was, um, but you also have to think of if you do get a day, a day off and you're in the middle of nowhere, then what do you do? So it's a it's a tough one. Uh, I think I think they did okay in that in that sense. Possibly shouldn't have been right in the middle of town um, because all of a sudden, as soon as uh, as soon as the build up to the games, to one day before the games, all of a sudden your hotel was was manic and uh, and raucous in the in the bar area. So there was there was little to no sleep happening anyway. So it's fine. So, so in, in that first game, Simon, you come on after 54 minutes for Aid Magidi, I think it was, in the defeat to Croatia. And I'm not sure, is it the impression you make? Is it how well you're going in training? But but what are the discussions like where Trap comes to you and says, you're starting up front for me against Spain? Uh, yeah. Um, well, the I don't know if you go, go back to the Italian game where we played in, um, in Belgium, where Andy Kiel did... Um, he did a really good job on Andrea Pirlo in that game. Uh, and we we end up winning the game, I think, 2-0 or 2-1. Um, 
and Trap sort of had that in his mind and he wanted to play sort of five across the middle, um, leave Robbie up top and and sort of try and compact the mid the midfield. It would have been um it would have been, it would have been uh, Keith Andrews, Wheelow, Aiden, me and and um and Duffer. And we would have just tried to compact it as much as we can. Um but all of a sudden you got to think of when you get the ball, you know, what do you do? And it's, uh, and it was just a tough, it was just a tough day at the office. Um, when you're coming up against those kind of, those kind of lads, when you, you're talking Xavi Alonso, Busquets, Silva, Xavi, Iniesta, it's uh it's a little bit of a, a tougher ask to try and keep hold of the ball when you regain it. Um, because you, you're without the ball for a long period of time. So, so your job was to to drop back that day, and and Robbie Keane was the, the sole striker. Yeah, he it was it was to try and it was to try and uh, nullify the the midfield and and make sure that we made it difficult to play uh, for the three or four um, Spanish lads in there, and and then it was trying to hit on the break. But for me, it was, I mean, listen, whether we would have played four four two, whether we would have played you know, any system possible. Um, I think we needed pace and between myself and Robbie, we're, we're not the quickest. So it was, it was always going to be a very, very tough ask. And we were always probably going to be sat back um, defending for most of it. So we needed a bit of pace and, and, you know, when he come to me and he said, look, we're going to play uh, in the Spain game. Are you okay with that? Or, you know, are you ready for that? And I was like, I'm not I'm never gonna turn that down. So um whether I thought I was the right option or not, um, you know, I'm never gonna say no to to a possible start in a in a European championships. I mean, they're European champions, they're world champions at this point. I can't imagine there's any way that you can underrate going up against Alonso Busquets Chavi and then even Ramos and PK at the, the heart of their defence. But having said that, when you get out on that pitch that evening, were they even a level above what you expected? about four or five levels above. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, no, they, they just, listen, I think the fact that they, majority of them all play together, um, they either play Barcelona or they play at Madrid. Um, obviously, there's a few that play, played in England as well, but majority of them know exactly the way they play all the time. Um, so it is possession-based football. It is, you know, exactly who's comfortable. I mean, one thing that I, I loved about sort of playing against it is that Ramos and PK split and Busquets just sat in the middle of them them two and, and they allowed their fullbacks to just go. Um, they had so much respect and so much um, belief in Busquets that he was able to sort of just drop and, and be that sort of focal point of their build-up play, um, which made it a lot, you know, made it very difficult for us because that the rotation of their midfield was just incredible. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a, a big lesson after that and I guess the the, the situation where the, you've got like a, a wind down into Italy which is essentially a dead rubber game what are those days like between that, that Spain and that Italy game well we got a day off after that one um, I think <laughs> I think it was just one of those that you need to sort of go see your families um, you know try and get yourself back into some sort of frame of mind where you can have a go at the Italians and um I remember sort of walking around the hotel and um, going for a, going for a coffee and um, 
it was it was tough. It was tough. And then and then you have to we obviously had to fly to to the new hotel and and, and play the Italian game. But we still felt that there was a possible chance of getting something from that game. Um there wasn't it wasn't down tools, it wasn't um it wasn't give up at all. It was, it was, let's have a go at this and see how we, how we get on. Um, but, you know, it, again, it wasn't to be, we weren't, we weren't good enough on the, on the day. Sorry, are you taken off at halftime in the Spain game? Yeah. So you all of a sudden are the, the scapegoat for, for that, for that evening? Well, I think, I, I mean, I, I can't remember what the score was at halftime, two, three, whatever it was, but I mean, obviously what the, the decision to be made was, that we weren't one nil. Was it one? So well, I mean, it wasn't that bad then. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, obviously, what was happening probably wasn't um, was what was required. And I guess, like I said, I think we needed some pace. So um, so coming off and, and and bringing, I think Doyle came on, did he? Um, Walters maybe. Yeah, I mean, it was, <laughs> tried to erase it from my memory, <laughs> um, you know, but we needed something. And at 1-0, possibly, did we need the, the chat or did we try and get back into the game? And then it, we got hit on, on the counters and, and everything else. So maybe that was the, the case. Uh, just Simon, like, is, I know you actually had quite good time for Trap and, and Marco and sort of did a good time for you, clearly, because they gave you some, like, chances in some really big games but I think like the broader public perception outside I mean Trapp was given a new contract before the tournament but it felt like it was very damaging that exercise that whole competition and I think after that even that autumn it got a bit testy pretty quickly for Trapp like was there a sense of it actually felt like the end of something at the end of that competition if you know what I mean like it, it, it felt like that was the real turning point for Trap that tournament that it, it promised so much but afterwards it was almost like the slow countdown unfortunately to his departure yeah I mean listen Dan I think when you because we went something like 14 games unbeaten leading up to the tournament yeah. um, so I think if any any manager in international football goes 14 games, it's probably looking like they're going to get a new contract anyway. Um, just the way it works, 14 games is probably two years or so in, in international games. So if you're not in tournaments. So it's, um, he obviously done well, uh, but you then have the the fact that you've got a, a major tournament. And normally when you look at international managers, they're, they're sort of, their their success is is developed on whether they do well in the tournaments to whether they get new contracts or not. But the fact that he got a new contract before the tournament suggested that he was the man going forward. And then obviously how the tournament unfolded, there was obviously going to be a lot of backlash um, on one his contract and two the fact that he get he got one on on how the tournament um, ended. Uh, Simon, our apologies for uh, bringing this all up again uh, this morning, but uh, thanks a million for, for taking the call and being so generous with your time. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Thanks a million. Simon Cox there, uh, striker with the Republic of Ireland in 2012, in 2012 on the line there. Um, 
Yeah, like, I mean, th- that's, you were kind of talking about it a little bit earlier on, Dan, that that moment for uh, a whole cohort of people going over is definitely just the sense of, of chasing O2 to a degree, isn't it? Even, oh. even from your own perspective, is like, I mean, uh, journalistically, oh, it's like Pan being like the biggest story in the history of Irish sports and f- your first tournament since uh, 2002, you know? Yeah, like, I look, well, yeah, not to personalise it, but yeah, it was the first time covering Ireland at a major tournament. It was like, this, you know, this could be, you know, this could be great. You could be sort of, you know what's that? You know, writing the first version of history or something. You know, and and uh, I mean, really, it wasn't that. You know, as I said, it was like uh, it's a it, version it, of history. It's a version of history. Let's look at things that went wrong. But as I said, so much of so much of the like at the, in the moment, you get caught up in the day to day. Like that's one of the things being on the beat. You cover the day to day. It's always the next thing. Like what's going to happen? And sometimes it's only with the remove of time. Like you step back and look at the sort of absurdity of aspects of it, and it's sort of probably you 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 sort of knew it in your, in your time, but you were living it, so you were so used to it. What was but the most it, absurd thing that happened in, from from your experience? Oh, yes. but it was just like I mean, like, I don't want to go down this road, but it was probably just the like the, the anecdotal tales of like sighting of you know John Delaney and various people around the place. You know, I don't want to go into it again. We've been there before. Yeah. The stories are well told, but I like, mean, some some of the clips are still there on YouTube. Like yeah. they haven't been destroyed by 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 history. You know, and. But like everyone was caught up in the moment to some degree, you know, and you did have these sightings of various things. And even, like I think even as well, it's hard to talk about with sort of, uh, you know, with, with Simon on the line. But I think I think the players were sort of given um, uh, that day off after that, that middle game. Um, and I think, you know, they, they just, I think they just went for it. I think this has been spoken about before. It was like, so she sort of was like, you know, it was sighting that one or two squad members sort of ended up hearing, did you hear such and such was on the beach in the early hours? Like, it's like, did this really happen? You know, it just, it ended up just becoming quite sad in a certain way, you know, but um, yeah, the absurdity was just, when you think about it, we're in this sort of, you'd always just hear what had happened in the cocktail bar last night or some venue or something. And as I said, I'll stand over the stag the stag party line. The players were not partaking in the stag yeah. party, to be clear. But but it, there was that overall sense of loss of complete sort of chaos. And I, I think people who travelled will all have their stories as well. I think a lot of fans were, and I think maybe for some of them as well. Like I can look at it from a very cynical point of view. That I didn't particularly enjoy it after the first game. Like I actually hated it, but that was just purely because of my own experience like there's maybe there could be friend groups listening to this who had the best trip of their life of like travelling across Europe but yeah. it's something for them that they'll always cherish and yeah the football was disappointing but it didn't matter because they had a great time so I think sometimes like you, you can you can sort of put your own misery on the memory of it but for a lot of people I'm sure it was great times too it kind of know? feels like it was a moment for everybody to say Ireland is back and narrator Ireland we're not back <laughs> we all wanted out. it so yeah, badly yeah. We, we had it like as you said it's true we, we had the reading in the years montage in our head of course before it started we were, yeah. we were chasing that uh, David McLean has been in touch to say Paz now is great crack and I'm sure he wasn't the only one who had a, had a phenomenal time yeah. MOC who says anyone who booked to see Ireland after playing Croatia Spain and Italy needs their head examined was never going to get out of that group which I think is a, a fair point Sean O'Connor goes along with that as well saying god it was some shocking group uh, to get James Carew says someone whistled in the crowd before St. Ledger's goal 
goal and everyone thought it was offside so yes. we couldn't even enjoy that yeah I remember that very clearly actually yeah that's very that's a, that's a good memory yeah yeah we were I was in a pub so we didn't hear that whistle so like that moment was just just glorious that that was that was I was like this is what it is to be an Ireland fan who isn't, yeah. uh, isn't a child I mean this is this is what it's all about uh, MOC says we were not good enough to be there only for we got Estonia we would not have beaten another qualifying team definitely getting Estonia was was a was a significant help yeah well, see, I think the point is that, and I think this has been touched on by players before like that team was past its peak like I really think that Ireland team would have done okay at the World Cup in 2010 but it was just it was a tournament too far and like someone like Simon's a bit different because he was probably in his Irish peak at that time that was yeah. his sweet spot of his Irish career but a lot of the others they weren't and I think that was one of the things they had that big long grueling build up I think quite a few of the players had had long seasons and were playing through injuries you saw Seamus Coleman and Yerevan there recently end of a long season just wasn't physically at his peak and he struggled I think there was quite a few Irish players in that boat as well yeah, in that right. tournament that had a big factor in it and then finally then Philip Nolan says there was a few young players that came through around that time that should have been brought in but traps stuck with the team that got us there unfortunately yeah well yeah. McLean was brought in but he was 23 yeah. like Seamus Coleman I think would have been 24 and wasn't brought you know James McCarthy I think had a family reason but again, he would have been 22. Like, they weren't 17, 18. That squad would have done quite well at the World Cup two years previously. Yeah, that's the whole point. It, w- it was definitely... A, a, the, the, the moment had passed. And yeah. even even the nine, the six to nine months from Estonia to the tournament itself was big in, in, in terms of where that group were. But Yeah, you forget how long a distance there was actually between those you those two periods. You forget a lot of things about that time. Yeah, for sure. We'll we'll park that there. It's uh, 8.51. Andy Mitten is with us in the line. Andy, you weren't at uh, Euro 2012, were you? No, that was the last tournament I, I, I missed. Um, I, I was in America for a month, so I was watching it um, from from afar. But I was, at, I was at 16, I was at 20. Just thinking a year ago, I was on the road for 32 days covering um, that tournament. But no, I've, uh, I wasn't there in 2012. Spain won it, didn't they? They did. They were, uh, they were pretty damn good that year, to say the least. Um, we're going to turn our attention to Manchester United because even in the off-season... It turns out that Manchester United are a pretty interesting storyline. The big thing over the course of the weekend was uh, Richard Arnold going for pints with the Manchester United fans and uh, some Manchester United fans, uh, one in particular, recording Richard Arnold and everything that he was saying. Just uh, f- First of all, when this story broke, Andy, was it a sort of head-in-the-hands moment being like, oh no, here we go again? Or, or what was your initial emotion to, to leaked videos of, of Richard Arnold chatting to fans? When I saw it had, had been leaked, uh, I wasn't convinced that was uh, the right thing to do. Uh, I don't think Richard Arnold came out of it too badly, actually. Mm. Um, he met the fans. He gave his perspective, uh, agreed with some of it. I disagreed with other parts of it. But fans are annoyed at the moment. Manchester United were terrible last year. Lost the last six away matches. There's been continued protests uh, against the Glazer, uh, more so this year since uh, the results completely turned. But there were also significant protests last year after the announcement of the European uh, Super League. So the mood's on the floor among United fans and the the, the lack of uh, players so far has frustrated um, some fans. Uh, from Richard Arnold's perspective, he maintains that he's now in charge. He's going to do things his way. There's been so many changes at the club. 
so many staff leaving. Literally every week I get a member of staff ringing me saying, I'm going. And some of them are pushed and some of them jump. And United have lost a lot of good people in the last year. And they've also lost a lot of people. It's probably wise that they've moved on from Manchester United. The reaction to the fans going um, to the pub was pretty varied among Manchester United fans, ranging from good, this man's a glazer puppet, he's he's part of the damage which the owners are doing to Manchester United and have done since that takeover in 2005. And you had a lot of other people saying, turning up or intending to turn up at someone's house is, is well out of order. And a whole gamut of opinions um, from the fans in, in, in between. I think that if the video hadn't been leaked, it'd be very, very hard to to criticise Richard Arnold for what he did. And even the video being leaked, it's not his fault. So, like, I think that what would you do if you were in Richard Arnold's situation? I mean, I think he, I think he handled it quite, quite well. I mean, I, I would assume that the, the the vast majority of Manchester United fans are are okay with at least the contents of what Richard Arnold said and the decision to go and and meet the fans who were due to turn up at his house. Yeah, I think what he said. Um, the words are fine. Um, there was honesty there. Fans are not stupid. They know that huge amounts have been squandered on players. They know that Manchester United have underperformed massively. All this is taking place under the cloud of the Glazer ownership of the club. So whatever the club do, and they've done lots of good stuff, um, smaller stuff, which has helped match-going fans. Ticket prices have not gone up for over a, a decade been loads of good initiatives. United were excellent um, during COVID, engaging with the local community. Didn't take furlough like other clubs did. But the mood is always dependent upon results. Now, there's been times when uh, the fans have protested when Manchester United have been league champions. That that takeover was hugely controversial and the hangover is still prevalent now, um, 17 years later. Richard Arnold's got the best... Uh, Intentions, he knows what the fault lines are, he knows what the issues are. He's got a very, very tough job, as has Eric Ten Hag. You're up against uh, Manchester City with the way they're funded. You're up against Liverpool, who've recruited in a far smarter way than Manchester United. And pretty grim time for Manchester United. New managers come in. I spoke to lots of people in football about him. Really good recommendations of him as a coach. Let's see what he's like as a manager. But when Ralph Rangnick came in, you also had people like Jurgen Klopp saying, wow, the Premier League's so lucky to have this guy. And that didn't work out either. I think he won nine out of 27 um, matches. So it's difficult. You, you say Manchester United fans turn up. You can never speak for all Manchester United fans. I mean, I go to a lot of games. I speak to a lot of people. I try and soak um, get on boards, loads of different opinions, but so many different types of Manchester United fans and, and they all want different things. You've got people who go to every single game home and away. Might want something slightly different to someone who's never been to a match and just wants United to uh, sign more players. Everyone's completely different and the fan base is so fractured. It's basically thousands maybe millions of groups of mates who all think they're all the right 
and that everyone else is wrong. So huge amounts of intolerance among Manchester United fans towards other Manchester United fans. And when the mood is grim, and it has been grim, um, there's a lot of tension around. There's tension outside the club. There's tension within the club. And there's not been a happy year so far for Manchester United. The main reason for that is that the football has been absolutely terrible. Terrible. It's all right seeing players in the in the gym. I wouldn't have minded seeing them turn up on the pitch at Sellers Park last month. And I get the fact that they're showing that they're being professional. But excuse Manchester United fans for being a little bit circumspect at the moment and for being low on confidence on a lot of those players. It really has been an awful year, compounded by the fact that Manchester City won the league, Liverpool nearly won the league. Liverpool, clearly a brilliant team, reached another European Cup final, miles ahead of Manchester United. And to go to places like Anfield and stand in the away end and see your team destroyed um, is no fun. And Manchester United fans expect and deserve better without ever thinking they've got a divine right to win anything. These are the hard yards at the moment. But loads of years of success and they were fantastic, but the times right now are anything but. And Andy, what's a good season next season then? Like what's what's your definition for what would qualify as one? Far better than last season. I think you've got to say top four because realistically, I can't see Manchester United winning the league. I'd love to see a manager starting to get his ideas across, his philosophy, his project, call it what you will. I'd like to see individuals playing far better than they have done. There's a big obsession with the transfer window at the moment. Well, I remember the last one and being delighted with it come the end of it because Jadon Sancho had been signed, Rafael Varane, Cristiano Ronaldo. Bringing players in is no quick fix, as Manchester United fans have learned. Most of the transfers in the post-Ferguson era have either underwhelmed or failed. United routinely make world-class players worse players. And if Eric Ten Hag has got his own method and way of doing things, all power to his elbow. United have been led down the garden path so many times and signed big names and all the fans, including myself, have got excited when people like Bastian Feinsteiger have signed, Daniel de Maria, um, and so many of them have just not worked out. So that's another reason why Manchester United fans uh, are circumspect, why they're, why they're cynical at the moment. So United fans need to see evidence that the club is not going down, that it's bottomed out, that things are, are improving. That said, just over a, a year ago, Manchester United finished second and reached the Europa League final. I think the Europa League is more Manchester United's level it's glory, glory, Man United. Trophies are important. No, None have been won since 2017, but just to enjoy going to football again. I know most football fans don't see their team win trophies. I know that Manchester United fans will watch the team regardless. Season tickets sold out um, in no time with huge numbers. It's not just about the game, why you go and watch um, football, but United have underperformed so badly given the resources that have been put into the squad uh, in the last few years. And he's got to get better. And I think it will get better because I think Eric Tenag is a, is a very good coach, but he'll need time, he'll need patience, just like all the other managers needed that as well. So 
if United can change this cycle of, okay, you're in for two years, we're not very good, let's try another manager, that would be great. You say that there's such an obsession with the transfer window and like with Manchester United, it is particularly easy to be swept up in the transfer window if if you read everything online because they're linked to it, everybody. Uh, One of the real links at the moment is with Frankie de Jong and while Manchester United have been criticised in the past for getting, I guess, caught up in a transfer saga that lasts the entirety of the summer, it does feel that the de Jong thing could turn into a saga but it won't necessarily be Manchester United's fault. It's Barcelona trying to get every euro they possibly can given their own financial situation uh, and I guess Eric Ten Hag while he might be frustrated at the, the ongoing situation he might just have to wait for a month or two before de Jong comes in. Is, is that basically the situation right now in, in that transfer dealing? Well there's a lot more detail to it and I've, I've seen it from both sides. Um, Divided my time between Manchester and Barcelona for a long time. So I've got contacts at both clubs. I don't blame Barcelona for getting as much money as they can for a player who they paid 75 million euros for. A good player, popular player, but one of the few players there who they can get a lot of money for. One of the few who's not out of contract, has got the right age profile, but he earns a lot of money. He likes playing for Barcelona. He likes living in Barcelona. So you've got to take into consideration what the player wants, and you use the word saga, it certainly was with Cesc Fabregas. I wrote a piece about that last week for The Athletic, and I was all over that story in 2013, getting information from both ends. And even now, just filling in some blanks, such as David Moyes taking a call from Cesc Fabregas on the 1st of August that year, uh, as he was on the service station on the M5 on the way down to watch a game at Swansea and Sesk saying to him I will come and join United if I don't get selected in the first game of the season for Barcelona he did get selected Barcelona won 7-0 7-1 he played well and suddenly United were scrambling around and ended up with Marouane Fellaini who they always wanted but they also wanted Cesc Fabregas Ferguson always said the players who are most difficult to get are the ones worth working for You've got a situation with Manchester United where you've got multiple agents linking their clients to the club and fans, some of them maybe don't understand the nuances of a transfer market, taking it at face value, thinking, oh, we're signing this player. Some of them are not on Manchester United's list. The vast majority of them are not on Manchester United's list. And yet fans hear a name, they don't know the player, they they look into him, they Google him. Oh, this could be good. And then they get let down when that player moves somewhere else. It's very difficult for Manchester United to stop that. What do you want them to do? Come out and deny every single link. There's 22 links to different players, 20 different players on one day last week alone. So the media know, and I have editors as well, uh, that transfer speculation sells and it's it's just absolutely nuts it's a bit depressing actually for journalism you could do proper journalism you could do a big investigative piece and it would be read one-tenth of the numbers of a of a speculative transfer piece and because United are a huge club it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and it's quite ridiculous and I coined the term transfer junkie a few years ago because there are some people who are absolutely obsessed with signing players 
to the point that I joke that the team could almost stop playing matches and just sign players, just focus entirely on signing players. Don't play any football matches. <laughs> and this is the world that Manchester United are in at the moment. They've courted a, a global fan base. All these people want completely different things. But the fundamentals with the moment are United need strengthening, will be strengthened, have a budget to strengthen, but are very reluctant to have the pants pulled down, as has happened many, many times in recent years for players, because agents taking a huge cut know that Manchester United have got a lot of money and might think that Manchester United are desperate. What I think will happen with Frankie is that United will try and bring it to a head and get an answer, yes or no, because can't be chasing a player for the next two months. Uh, there's got to be better planning put in uh, than than that. But he's a great player. I think he'd do really well. I've watched him an awful lot. I've spoke to a lot of professional football managers about him. And if he signed, that would be really good, I think, for Manchester United. I would have also said exactly the same or almost of almost all the players who have signed in the post-Ferguson years. What's interesting, this kind of brings us back full circle to the Richard Arnold's uh, chat, is what Manchester United have done in the transfer market in the past, which is paying above the odds for players, whether when it comes to, to, to transfer fees or to players' wages. And one of the lines that stuck out to me from the Richard Arnold hidden camera stuff was, hidden cameras actually probably do, is probably overstating what it was, the phone the phone recording of him. Money is not a consideration in who we want. It's the, if the manager wants him. They've actually done the work on looking if he's a great player. And again, is it 100, is it 200? Get who you effing want. Uh, now, I know he's not necessarily saying there that we'll splash money on whatever and we'll give the manager any sort of cash he wants. But it does say to me that there is a huge bank of cash there that Manchester United are willing to spend in a way that other clubs aren't and I'm not necessarily sure that that part of the Richard Arnold chat is going to do Manchester United any favours in the transfer market Well it's not and there is money there and United are of the view that a lot of clubs don't have money still coming out of this Covid shadow and United would have even more money if the team had reached the Champions League but didn't Uh, a lot of wages have been offloaded uh, United's wage bill was atro- atrocious, as was Barcelona. So they're in a, a difficult situation as well, a more pronounced situation than Manchester United. There's money there, and United don't want the pants pulling down. But if you want to buy a top, top player, you got to play top money for it. I thought United did well in Jaden Sancho because Dortmund held out 110 million, 110, 110, 110. And United got him for 30 million less than that by negotiating pretty smartly. I'm not going to say now, after a pretty mediocre first season for Jaden Sancho, that that's a steal of the century because it clearly wasn't. But I think the way that United didn't jump in and didn't do as some fans say, break the bank, pay him what he wants, because that has led to the problems of recent years. It's led to Alexis Sanchez getting paid what he wants. It was a disaster. It annoyed all the other players in the dressing room. There's got to be a level of dressing room harmony beyond individual names to make Manchester United start functioning as a team again. And you have players like Anthony Martial earning more money than Mohamed Salah. I know he's been more effective. He doesn't wear the red of Manchester in recent years. 
And United have got to be smarter. Recruitment's got to be smarter. Um, use of the funds, because there's a massive um, budget there to pay players, has got to be smarter as well. But I'm saying all this from a position of weakness because uh, players will be looking uh, at the clubs and United are not as attractive as they once were, but still very attractive, still a huge club, still got the name. But you saw with um, Darwin Nunes, and United weren't seriously in for him, but could you blame him for going to Liverpool when you see the football there, when you see the manager there? Yeah. You can understand why people are, are looking at other clubs now. And United are no longer top of the transfer tree. And that's probably the thing that's accelerating the uh, Twitter frenzy around Manchester United and being linked with players is that Liverpool have got Darwin Nunez. Manchester City have got Erling Haaland. Their two biggest rivals are two clubs that have already completed significant pieces of business. I, d- I don't think Manchester United should succumb to a, a Twitter frenzy, as you called it. I don't see Jurgen Klopp taking on board what Liverpool's Twitter fans are saying. You've got to be strong in your decision-making. And there's been times where Manchester United have been weak in their decision-making. And it leads to signing players because of a Twitter frenzy, because they're available at the right price, even though Manchester United know that they're not signing a player for the for the first team, which is, which is ridiculous. And the problem with the Twitter frenzy is they'll never be happy. So United could sign De Jong tomorrow and it'd still be people saying, well, what about another player? You could bring seven players in and it'd still want an eighth player. It's, that, it's the junkie thing. It's looking for the next hit all the time and it's dangerous. Well, that's fans. Fans are entitled to their opinions. It's the club who's got to be smarter in their decision-making, in their recruitment, uh, in their use of the huge amount of funds that they've got available. It's going to be an interesting summer. Uh, Andy Mitten, great stuff as, as ever. Thanks, Millie, for joining us. Thank you. Cheers. Andy Mitten there on the line reacting to a fairly interesting few days. Uh, the 1958 getting a, a, a lot of um, a lot of time under the microscope. An underground group of Reds intent on upholding the values of Manchester United, its culture and traditions, in case uh, anybody wanted to know uh, what the, the 1958 was. So I'm not sure if Richard Arnold's going to be going for pints with any Manchester United fans anytime soon. No, I mean, it's, it's not great, really, was it? I mean, there's obviously the substance of what he said and you can pick that apart. But like, I think if someone decides to go and meet the fans, you don't record it. it like, sometimes, you know, people in, in football like they they will be accused of operating in a bubble and not unfairly and being a bit detached from reality and various things but like sometimes that's born out of like a deep suspicion of people and thinking you're going to be trapped all the time so it doesn't help when you go and do something and that's actually what happens yeah. you know it's like a stitch up um, like that's that, that that just drives people drives people into their sort of uh, into their gated community existence you know because they feel that this is if we go out there that'll end badly for you if you communicate with these people this is what they'll do to you and that's not that's not what you want to sort of foster those relations and I believe that the uh, leaker from the 1958 has been removed from the 1958 oh is he's gone now yeah, he's, there was a secret meeting and that was it I, I, I believe so I believe so there's a there's good soap opera if you uh, if, if you I, I, well, into it I don't think there was much case as well like it was clearly you could figure out where he was sitting based on I'm pretty the sure angle a picture of, of him online yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like, I'm pretty sure he, he shared it as well on Twitter yeah, yeah, me with, with the big man yeah it's sort of I, I can't imagine he had much of a defence case to sort of mount in that case you know ah oh.
Manchester United just uh, the gift that keeps on giving uh, it is 9.13 on this Tuesday morning and OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day uh, here's what we've got coming up on OTB Sports Radio over the next few hours OTB Gold is Keith Andrews in conversation with Philly McMahon 3 o'clock is the Dadcast 4 o'clock is a career retrospective with Stephen Elliott and from 6 o'clock is OTB Gold with Mayo legend Cora Staunton Off the Ball is live on your radio tonight with special guests Neda Manua and uh, Paul Mannion so you don't want to miss that you can follow Off the Ball across all our social channels subscribe to our YouTube channel and be sure to download the OTB Sports app for the latest and best in sports content and analysis we are back after these with Carl Milani talking live and talking US Open talking Rory McIlroy but before that uh, here is Gary Murphy on all those golf themes um, I thought he did really well he didn't have his best stuff at all um, he opened up well in the first round but I think superior putting masked a lot um, you know he was chasing his tail the whole week and he still pulls out a top five finish which I, I think I think he'll take a lot from that there's no doubt the previous week took a lot out of him whether he came in a little bit, a little bit flat emotionally, um, and he just didn't seem to drive the ball as well as he normally does. But I think he scrapped his way to the top five, and that—that's they're much better signs out of McIlroy than than uh, anything. So I, I think whilst it's another major that he hasn't won, he's back to number two in the world. He seems to be the the kind of governor of the PGA Tour at the moment, and seems to have more steel in his eyes than in recent seasons so I think it's all all good for Rory he'll you know be very excited to to go to St Andrews it's one of his favourite golf courses and if um, the weather's not too crazy mm. he will undoubtedly be there or thereabouts I mean the pudding has improved beyond all recognition and as you said masked over his, his uh, uh driver issues and longer game issues which are generally so sound and were so sound in Canada just a week prior so the pudding is extraordinary and like Brad Faxon and commentary takes such pleasure every time Rory holds in a you know a 20 footer because he's worked with him and then the wedge game seems to be improving month on month and, and was really the key to the win in Canada it does make it a touch frustrating I mean maybe it is tiredness as, as to why he didn't have his A game uh, like it was notable that Justin Thomas and Tony Finau did nothing in this tournament either so maybe there was a hangover from that very dramatic Sunday yeah. who knows and you know he's judged too too harshly sure. Justin Thomas won USPGA and he shot I think he was what eight over eight over yesterday yeah uh, John Ram like can you imagine if Rory had been in John Ram's position and shot three over the last round it'd be the end of the world over here so yeah and um, I think Rory there's some weeks, Joe, where 10th is your best week mm. or or it could be 25th. And I think that 5th was probably a win for Rory last week. I know there's no silverware with it, but um, I think he got a lot out of that tournament not having his best stuff. OTB AM on OTB Sports Radio, Ireland's first and only sports radio station. The Football Pod on OTB Sports. Do you still listen to the football pod or is that like texting your ex? Absolutely. As I often said, I'm jealous that uh, O'Donoghue who's so good, the little whore, but he's... Uh, <laughs> uh, it's brilliant. I, li- I, listened to, I listened to the one yesterday. I was, thank God for Tommy Rooney. I won't say that too often, but thank God for him. At least he stood up for me a bit. But the, the two boys were very big on Kerry yesterday. The football pod is available every Tuesday exclusively on the OTB Sports app. 
that put people off on a first date. Showing up late and getting your name wrong? Always a great start. Looking at their phone more than you? Eh, uh, hello. Someone who only talks about themselves. Oh, really? God, aren't you great? Look, no one said dating is perfect, but at godating.ie, we promise we'll always try and find your perfect match. Because somewhere out there, there's someone for you. And godating.ie will help you find them. Yes, even you, socks and sandals guy. Go on, go for it with godating.ie. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. 9.17, you're very welcome back to OTBAM, which is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Cahal Malani has joined us in studio. Cahal, a very good morning to you. Good morning, lads. How are you? Very well. So we did a bit of a, a dive into the US Open yesterday, and I guess the context around the US Open was largely to do with Live Golf and I guess everybody was basking in the, the failure of Phil Mickelson over the course of the weekend as as is uh, as was a pretty easy thing to do. What's going to be interesting is that this story is not going to go away and over the next couple of days what we're going to get is the European Tour stance on Live Golf. Mm, yeah, that's going to be crucial. I think there's two crucial decisions coming up. Uh, that is one of them. Um, we're expecting some news on that on Thursday from the, the European Tour, the DP World Tour, as it's, it's known now. And then the decision of the major championships longer term in terms of whether they will allow the live players to play in their events. And that would, could be the one that, that sways it one way or the other for the bigger players who want to add major championships to their CV. So I suppose the ball is very much in the DP World Tour's court at the moment. The sense is and the word is that they will come down pretty heavily on the live players that have uh, gone over to the new series. They have to kind of follow the PGA Tour's lead in that regard because they've got a strategic uh, alliance and they've got some co-sanctioned events and quite a close working relationship now. So you'd imagine that they will align with them in terms of uh, suspending players or banning players from the DP World Tour uh, that have played with uh, the Live Golf Tour so far. And that may stem some of the flow, but it's very, very hard to see um, how they can withstand the scale of the money that's on offer to these players longer term. What what do you do if you're like Fred Ridley and the Masters? Like, do, do you just lean into this thing now and say that we could have an exclusive situation where we do bring the best golfers in the world together or are you protectors of the game and thinking to yourself actually you know what screw you all you live yeah. golfers yeah so the thing about the Masters is that like they lean so heavily on the you know the the previous champions dinner like the former winners and the fact that so many former winners have gone over there and there's speculation about more like is Adam Scott going to go or you know there's, there's, there's more question marks um I, I don't know if they're going to go down that road now. Obviously, the, the dinner is the thing that will. The, the dinner, it's like, like like we don't have all these empty seats <laughs> at the at the dinner. Like we're going to have to start inviting lads who come second. But I think the master, the big thing about Seamus Power, of course, getting into the Masters was the top fifty mm. in the world ranking, which is a big part of like the prestige of you've got into the Masters and the, where this thing is clearly going is going to be towards the status. Like you see, they're they're trying to get some kind of world ranking points for the. The live events, even though they're shiny, like they're fifty-four team, fifty-four whole team events, it's not really tournament golf to the same degree. It's like, you know, can you get world ranking points for, uh, you know, something that's not the length of a sort of a regulation tournament? And yeah. um, so, what will happen is that a lot of the live golfers will, if they're not playing PGA Tour events and their own events aren't getting uh, ranking points for them, then their world ranking will naturally drop and drop and drop and drop. So the previous champions will be fine, but it'll be harder for the other live golfers to get into the majors. So there's there's a form of putting up a barrier there. Um, 
but I don't know. It's it's uh, like the the you get this, the sense that the US Open and stuff like it's very much like well we couldn't pull up the drawbridge after it's done. I mean you have this bizarre situation this week for the DP World Tour where Sergio Garcia, uh, Louis Westhuizen, and Martin Keimer are playing in Germany in the BMW Open because they were the entry list was done up before all this came out. So they're now playing in a European Tour DP World Tour event this week. Uh, possibly on the day that they find out well you can't play in anymore yeah. so the soap opera sort of is just it's just rolling on like, I'm sort of captivated by it slash horrified by it but it's um, it's it's never been as interesting a time I think for people to be sort of on the golf beat mm. what do you think will what do you think the majors will do Kyle? I think the the Open Championship is going to be very interesting because the RNA traditionally have seen themselves as the uh, I suppose the founders of golf and it's at the home of golf it's the 150th uh, Open Championship at St Andrews and if they come down hard I think they'll they want to take a lead worldwide with this and if they were to ban the players it would be a big big thing to happen but you also have to tally that against the spectacle and if you ban these players and granted some of them are you know Dustin Johnson is a big name uh, Patrick Reed, Bryson DeChambeau are, are set to go across as well to, to the Live Golf Tour it's reported so if those players are all committed to it and you ban them from the major championships, are you weakening your product and by extension weakening the significance of maybe winning an Open Championship, which is uh, something that they don't want to do? Um, my sense is that the DP World Tour will come down heavily on the players this week and follow the PGA Tour's lead, but the major championships really is the, the more important one. And you could see a scenario where if the major championships um, were to allow the players to play and the Live Golf Series gets up and running to the 12 or 14 events that they're rumoured to have or they want to have in a couple of years time that you know an 18 tournament schedule between the live tour and the four majors would sit quite nicely with quite a lot of the players I think um, but you would imagine there will be a unified kind of stance between the, the various organisations that run the major championships and then the, the two major tours as well but you know Paul McGinley uh, had some quotes I think in the papers this morning about that this is going to fracture golf for quite a long time and that it'll be very it could be hard to come back from it and it's hard to disagree with that theory um, and you just wonder what the atmosphere is between the players as well on the tour and of course you have to consider the, the implications for the Ryder Cup which is such a huge revenue driver for the likes of the European Tour and you know I think it's probably the one event alongside the Masters and maybe the Open Championship that generates interest among non-golf fans for a week uh, that they'll tune into it and they can buy into the team element and the match play format but where does the Ryder Cup land if uh, so many players are excluded from playing in it yeah, I'm trying to think who's which team is more affected by it. Like I, I presume the well, it's it's sort of, but it's a bit like the the live tour. It's like a lot of the veterans have been taken out. Mm. Like it's sort of like it, you've taken out a lot of the sort of over forties. I think the problem with the European team was it was becoming, uh, you know, maybe a, t- a tournament too far in the sense of like though Sergio still performed quite well in the Ryder Cup, but you now Sergio Westwood. Poulter, of course, of course. Mr. Mr. Ryder Cup himself, um, even though he wasn't very good in the last one. Mm. Um, so a lot of them are gone. I mean, the American have lost more. The Again, like the whole live sort of recruitment policy has been, they haven't been able to get any of the really good guys with the exception of Dustin Johnson, but they've gone for like the wild card people who would sell. But I can't imagine the team room dynamics are going to be affected too much by Bryson being taken out there or like Patrick Reed. 
you know, yeah, like, doesn't even get on with his family. Point, like, do you know yeah. what I mean? So, yeah. like, there's, 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 there's an uh, endless pit of American golfers. There out. is, and like, I think Brooks Kropka is the interesting one now because his brother's gone with uh, Liv, and and but even his sort of status is a little bit diminished in in the last year as well. So it's sort of fifty fifty in terms of the impact. I mean, Europe definitely don't have the depth, but then you know they got Matt Fitzpatrick now and instead of Hovland and you know you know yeah. Seamus Power it's yeah. going to be practically an Irish team at this stage like you know yeah. the way things are going if, on the rankings it actually probably would be to be three of them they'd be in there what, what would like we kind of like tossed this around like last week a little bit like what would happen if Live Tour set up an Irish event or decided that you know there would be they would come down to their manor you know a, a year out from the right. they would go to Dunbeg surely wouldn't they Dunbeg yeah sorry that would, that would make perfect sense yeah. Uh, like what sort of gallery would it get because it, it, it certainly feels to me that you know the thing has kind of been brushed aside as something that people don't care about the galleries aren't spectacular and I guess without an attendance it feels that it's a bit of a non-event but it does feel to me that no matter what the field is in the Irish Open as long as you've got a few Irish golfers turn, uh, thrown in yeah. a little bit of, of stardust you will generally get a massive crowd at the, the Irish Open like that might just be my experience yeah, like, well, being there and it feels like an event it's basically well, I mean, I'm going down next week but I think it's, it's sold out for the weekend yeah there's like five of the top 50 there but yeah. I mean the field for the JP McManus Pro-Am the week after I was only looking at it yesterday and it has some like big names like Tiger and Rory but it's practically a who's who of the live golf event below it as well well yeah so, they're so, all there so my question is like I just think we're so mad for uh, like uh, attending live sport and I think we've kind of like shown up in, in great numbers the Irish Open down through the years like what, what would happen if Live Golf showed up here would uh, yeah. we have like a massive turnout yeah well I think the initial event uh, in London last week there was kind of a strange atmosphere I watched a bit of it on YouTube but the vox box that I heard the fans didn't really care about the background to it at all they right. just wanted to see how many of them had paid I mean that was the key thing that's the thing that yeah. was a slight thing as yeah, well yeah, like you, what, I think if it happened here we might have a lot of Instagram influencers sent to it like, do you know what I mean that's what they would do they would they would that that would be a good portion of your, your fan base and, there and that'll be the sort of stamp of authority that Live Golf this would be it yeah then Rory McIlroy will be over because I don't know the happy pair of fans <laughs> to, to Live Golf yeah exactly yeah yeah. Uh, people I, would yeah. go but I mean I don't know I'm still I'm still a little bit sceptical that I think the format of their events is still a bit uh, I don't know well, it's I think people are going to take photos which is maybe maybe that's yeah. all they want is people to be there whether they care who wins or not well that's so. the thing it's a glorified exhibition match really at the end of the day I mean there's absolutely no significance attached to whether you win or lose in terms of the title that you get it's just a check at the end of the day mm. and they're all guaranteed money when they show up it's, I think it's a good point that you make as well about the 54 holes and ranking points. It's like you can't give out ranking points for like a, a tournament that's it's just like not a, it's a full It's like tournament. a 75-minute football match. Yeah. Saying, actually, we're going to play a lot of 75-minute football matches, but can we still have a FIFA ranking to get seeded for the World Cup draw? So like, I think any of the live guys who aren't major champions with sort of with, with prolonged shelf life... Like this thing with the, the younger lads going into it, and there's not that many, but some of them have... Um, it's going to be hard for them to climb the rankings to get into the majors. So that's why they're going to try and find a compromise eventually. But and they can't um, go to seventy-two holes because LXXII has nowhere near the ring of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is the whole point underpinning yeah. this. But I see Matt Fitzpatrick's brother Alex is actually making his pro debut in the Irish Open next week. But he turned down. He was speaking today or yesterday, but he turned down the Live Golf. They went after him just out of college, offering like two million quid to go in, and he said no. But I mean, it's very hard for lads just out of college to go. Yeah, there you yeah. Credit to him for doing that, actually. And he said that that he he obviously has had a good amateur career, but he spoke to his brother and 
went through it and but he said it was like a figure that he couldn't comprehend even the amount of mm. money that he was been offered so it just shows what they have and they've got 1.6 billion i think set aside to develop it over the next couple of years it's just mind-boggling total you know at a point when the questions you'd imagine will start to dissipate a little bit exactly exactly um so i actually think it's been a reasonable enough start for live golf and the names that they've got and the, i thought it was an okay start in terms of the tournament that they had the names that they had it uh, actually went quite well i thought and it's going to be very interesting now because next week the, f- the first event in the states is on opposite the irish open yeah. so that's going to be the real litmus test because if you can get more players over that side of the pond that maybe didn't fancy traveling across to europe and they've got a pretty easy schedule in their home country but not too far to travel and uh, a relatively easy schedule in terms of the the um, intensity of the events and the schedule of the events, that's, yeah. that's going to be the real test, I think. For sure. It's going to be very, very interesting to see what happens. Carl, thanks for popping that's in. Uh, Dan, thank you for popping no in worries. this morning. Enjoy uh, Rovers Bowes on, on Friday night. OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We're going to be back tomorrow morning from half past seven where uh, Johnny Ward will be in Dan's seat. We'll be previewing the All-Ireland Senior Football quarterfinals as well. And we'll be looking back on Wexford's season with uh, hurler Matthew O'Hanlon. Uh, we're going to have much more besides as well.